two things before we start today's episode. First off, thank you for your continued interest in the show. And secondly, if you're interested in supporting us even further, we've put up a limited edition Essential Tremors t-shirt for sale that features our rarely used blue logo. Go to EssentialPodcast.com to get one. But that doesn't matter because, yeah, it feels really real. And then the meta quality is important, I think, for another thing that I didn't really realize at the time, but I think it was speaking to me, was this kind of inside-outside quality to the story, especially Andre's verse, where he's sort of part of this moment. But it's also sort of a verse about him being outside of that moment or like, oh, wow, like, I had, I don't know, I don't, I don't want to excess Andre's privilege or any of those things, but like, there's something there about he, he realized his life was different than this person's, and that was a big deal. This is Essential Tremors. I'm Lee Gardner. I'm Matt Byers. The idea behind this show is to have musicians and other creators talk about songs that shaped who they are. We're not looking for favorite songs necessarily. We're also not looking for songs that they'd choose to take with them if they were stranded on a desert island. What we're looking for are songs that have significance to them. Songs that might have changed the course of their creative lives or their lives in general. KKK outside, they not rockin' white No, they dipped in blue Any sudden moves put you down on sight Even if you got fingertips in the Brandon Soderberg is a reporter living in Baltimore and was previously the editor-in-chief of the Baltimore City Paper and a contributing writer to Spin. His work has appeared in the New York Times, Vice, The Village Voice, and many other publications. He is co-author with Baynard Woods of I Got a Monster, The Rise and Fall of America's Most Corrupt Police Squad. Can you dig it up? The first song Soderbergh chose as being formative for him was The Art of Storytelling by Outkast. Somebody hit me the other day for a rendezvous. Was it the winch that cut the good and the dungeon crew? Let's say her name is Susie Screw, cause she screwed a lot. Making a player hit that chunk at legitimate spots. Not no parks, back seats, and things of that nature. Had to hate your player. I'm kicking the door down, never said I hate her. Straight later, played the girl like Darth Vader. Made her from Collie Park and Fed, all the way down to the hater. Like Jada, her whip was sharp and sporty, that was shouty. Save the snake on eggs in a Beamer 840. It's foggy. I went to the crib to call her, but she lost me. My baby mama beat me, 7 o'clock is gonna cost me. But I still wanna cut her dope. Maybe she had to work. I called her in the mall, women a real tight skirt. She was fine as what? I wanted to sex the girl up. She said, let's hit the parking lot so I can sick so your the, duck. I think, you know, that outcast song, Darth storytelling part one you know came out in 98 so i was 14 um it's a big deal for me because of that age and i think that um i had an uncle who's only seven years older than me so like when i'm 14 he's 21 when i'm seven he's 14 so it's like the you have like a cool basically cool older brother so it's hearing a lot of that stuff um and that was a really big influence on like my musical taste because you know again like i'm seven he's 14 so like club music in the early 90s in baltimore a lot of early rap stuff so sort of always just following his lead the way you do when you're a young annoying kid um and this record the outcast record equemini really anticipated it um so that mattered to me and then this song in particular kind of was important because of i mean as a, someone who be, became a writer, like the storytelling, that's even the title is important. Um, but I, I was really interested in writing and really interested in like thinking about stuff and critical thinking, but like I was, had no attention span as a kid, as a teenager. I was so, I couldn't, like I would read, but like long books, even like long movies, I just was like, it really struggled. And so like, so a lot of my critical thinking skills I was sort of developing ended up going through the rap music I was listening to because I was starting to realize the sort of literary or whatever qualities of it. And so this song, I think, was one of those moments where I realized that um, because it, it's sort of nice structure, you know, 
you have the two verses, the trading the verses. Um, and then the way that it also, it's sort of a cliche or you don't want to feed this, these tropes of rap, but it seems so sort of accessible and down to earth in a certain way, but also wasn't light. Like the Andre's verse is incredibly tragic. And so it was interesting because like I grew up like the Wu-Tang stuff was really important for me. But even though now when I look at that stuff, I realize that it was really small stakes. But at the time, the whole world of it and the storytelling felt huge. It felt like Scorsese movies, you know. Um, and even though when you listen to those songs, now, like Ghostface songs are really tiny, like noir tales, but they felt big. Whereas this song is ostensibly about uh, one member uh, hooking out with a girl in his car. Um, that's really the extent of it um, in a way that as a, as a grown ass person now kind of upsets me and offends me a little more than it did when I was 14, which I thought it was kind of funny. Uh, it's not funny. And then Andre's verse kind of picks up and he, the, the way he goes into sort of telling this idyllic story, which is kind of, you realize is a flashback. He's talking about being a kid around my age at the time, I think, and this sort of idyllic romance. And then the story being that, you know, she, he, he ends up having more, uh, access to the world than she does and her, her big dream is to be alive and then it catches up and you know he she's dead um and i think what really struck me about that was the sort of quotidian aspects of it like the mall hanging out in the summer those kinds of things and then the tragedy that happens still kind of being small and the way that all these things kind of played against each other which is kind of what outcast is really good at like breaking down these binaries and those kind of things that was really influential to me for whatever reason like um, later getting the sort of language to think of it, it made me think of like things that in college you learn about like sort of Harlem Renaissance literature and the sort of so-called high and low. And it kind of mixes all that together. And that was just really, and because there's no real crime or anything street involved in what they're talking about, you know, everyone, everyone there's plenty of people receive oral sex in a car in a mall parking lot. Um, you know, it sort of felt small in a way it was accessible, but then the structure and the way it came around was really kind of brilliant to me and I sort of just realized that and like it hit me in that way and then as part of that larger record which is all about these sort of two people playing off each other not even the kind of images that they sort of perpetuate which is like Andres the art weirdo big boy is sort of the pimp player guy those are really all broken down in all those songs too so it just it felt so dis and now I have the language it feels distinctly like American and like these, con these contradictions and the way these things would sit next to each other. And that just really stuck out to me. And I think I saw the structure and the way that as you start listening to music and care, you start reading more, that kind of weird psychedelic moment where you actually see the like structure behind the thing. Like, oh, wow, there's a real rhyme or reason to this thing. And that really affected me, I think. Well, it's it's kind of meta, right? Because there's the line in the, uh, in the chorus, I guess, where and I'm not going to get it exactly it's like you know we're just storytelling now this is what we're doing i'm telling you a story which is always you know a funny thing to hear someone telling you a story i'm going to tell you a story so. yeah and and yeah and then there, there's also on top of the meta thing that it's like playing on a trope because the the sort of transfer is the girl that uh, that big boy is messing with before he gets to pick up his daughter by the way like, all those little details to me are just so good and real and very like you know, just like how normal people are for better or worse, you know, like sometimes you go to the mall and you hook, hook up with this girl and then you can pick up your daughter. It just felt very real. But the meta thing is like, so the, the transfer over is then Andre kind of used that to be like, hey, she had a friend and now I'm going to talk about the friend. And that's the sort of the truth. And I don't know if the stories are true exactly or not. The big boy story is probably extensively true. It's not you know, why you would make that up. But, uh, but that doesn't matter because, yeah, it feels really real. And then the meta quality is important, I think, for another thing that I didn't really realize at the time, but I think was speaking to me, was this kind of inside-outside quality to the story, especially Andre's verse, where he's sort of part of this moment, but it's also sort of a verse about him being outside of that moment, or like, oh, wow, like, I had, I don't know, I don't, I don't want to access Andre's privilege or any of those things, but like, there's something there about he he realized his life was different than this person's. And that was a big deal, especially when you're young. It's like, oh, wow, I thought we were all kind of hanging out. And so he has kind of this inside outside thing that I think if you're a smart, weird kid like I was who didn't know what to do with his energy, you kind of relate to that too. Because I could relate to hanging out with friends and doing that kind of shit, but also 
felt outside of it. And I think Andre does a really good job. And that's kind of the storytelling quality too, right? Like it, it, and that's maybe even slightly journalistic in a way I didn't realize, like you're kind of reporting on something that's happening and then he's sort of implicating himself in it to a certain extent, but his implication isn't just because he was there because kind of the second, the lesson of the story is this sort of realizing he was in over his head or realizing what happens to this person as he succeeded, this other person kind of, uh, got caught up in this uh, this uh, world of drugs, which he also isn't too, it's kind of corny and like a classic story. It has a, basically has a moral, but they outcast skirts that like ability to really lay it on one side. I think they're really good at that too. That was really relatable to me. Or I understood that of like, they're kind of addressing these people, including folks that are maybe more down and out than them or even less adjacent to crime and doing crime. But they kind of had a understanding and a sympathy for it that never felt, it kind of felt different than some of that rap I grew up with, which I really, as a, especially like an elementary schooler, just happened to grow up in the 90s. I have someone older than me. But a lot of that sort of conscious stuff is great, but it's very, it's sort of conservative sometimes with lowercase c and sort of telling you how to live. And this song tells you how to live without telling you how to live. So where did this sort of come in the, in the order of the things you heard? That is, I don't expect you to remember literally I heard this record than this record, but had you heard uh, a lot of rap at that point from your uncle or was this still pretty new? I had heard a lot of rap from my uncle, but I, and I think that things about it touched me. Um, Like, I mean, the, the, I think the first, a single I ever bought was it was a good day by Ice Cube, which is just not a. It's, that's not me trying to say I was cool. I was just in third grade and MTV is on, and you're told that you like music, so you buy. Hey, this sound, you have no idea why you like anything in the third grade. Um, but I, I think because also my parents are really young when they had me; they were teens. My uncle's only seven years older, so like I think I was ended up just being around that stuff more directly. I mean, an example is like, I, I saw Goodfellas when it came out on VHS. Like, why my father and my uncle let me watch Goodfellas when I was six years old? I don't know. But there's just no way that hasn't permanently, for better or worse, warped my brain. And so I had some, I was probably a little more aware of that stuff and had parents that were very forthright about explaining how stuff worked. And so the rap stuff was interesting, but like, you know, like, so the Ice Cube song or like the far side, like I really liked the far side when I was really young because they're funny. Like that's all it was and kind of, kind of recognized the nerdiness and appreciated that. So like all that stuff. And then the Wu-Tang stuff sort of happens when I'm in, you know, getting into middle school. And it's just like the big, it's like the biggest things in the world. Um, so I had those sort of frames of reference. And, but the Outcast record was because it was, I like a lot of people, I heard about them through the previous record, AT Aliens. So I kind of anticipated this in a way that, when you know when you're 14 is when you start to really care about music. I remember what coming out, wanting know it was coming out, waiting for that date, and so I think that affected me in a way. And I think it was probably one of the. I think it's probably the first record that I really, really anticipated and knew a lot about, and so I was really ready for it. And was that a moment where I was starting to read and care about poetry and writing, and so that was just really in my head when I was listening to it. So I think those kinds of things, the other stuff, kind of prepped me for it especially Wu-Tang, it's such a vast world you can get caught up in. It feels comic booky, all the things that teens like. And then the Outcast record felt like that. And also it was such a big record. Like it felt cinematic too. Like there's lots of skits, but they're uh, sort of actually entertaining. And like a lot of rap skits, there's like some really long songs towards the end of the record. It's a really ornate and strangely structured record. So you had to sort of dig into it too. Because it sort of starts with a bunch of songs that are sort of rappy that kind of don't go together then it has this middle part that's kind of works together and then it has these sprawling like quasi hendrix uh the spodioti dopalicious all like ska horns like really weird stuff and so it just felt like a book or a show or like novelistic in the sense of like there's a lot here they need to take in and so i think it also was telling me simply by the length of the record in these things like hey you should probably think about this thing more and i kind of responded to that did did rap supplant something else? Like there was, was there something that you were kind of into before that came along or was this sort of ground zero? Uh, I think, I think, I think it kind of replaced comic books for real. Like I really liked comics because I liked to draw when I was a kid and I liked to create worlds and stuff like that. And then I think that like, 
I think adolescence hits everybody hard, but I felt it was very intense. Like I sort of always felt like through my weird parents and my weird uncle who only sort of semi-parented me, um, I felt like kind of outside of all that sometimes. And so there was also a way in which by the time I was in middle school, I felt like I should be not into comics and be more of an adult. It's a very weird thing. I think it's just being exposed to things you should be exposed to, basically, to make you grow up faster. And so the rap stuff sort of felt more sophisticated. It felt more adult, but it sort of fed the same urge of like world building. And there's things in it you can relate to, but it also just feels huge. And even even though I'm talking about the outcast, outcast is like these groups of two people that felt very real. Again, like the stakes of this song outside of someone dying of a heroin overdose in it are pretty you know, quotidian and common, you kind of get, it's pretty basic. Um, but they also felt bigger than life. So that kind of tension there was really interesting. So I think that the rap stuff, having some, and those guys all, like Wu-Tang love comic books, obviously. So I sort of was just like weirdly following that parallel track. And then movies too. Um, it's sort of interesting because now I don't really like Tarantino movies at all for the most part. But Again, I saw Pulp Fiction when it came out, so I was 10. Because my dad was like, you should see this movie, it's great. <laughs> and so, um, and that was really mind-blowing. I got the I got the jokes in it, I didn't get everything in it, but I got the jokes, I got it was funny, the violence was, I understood why that was funny and dark. And so I think that also, starting to get into movies, which is just that moment where like crime stuff was like what was hot, and a lot of bad, bad, bad Tarantino rip-offs. Um, but I, that all was sort of swirling around. So like comics into some sort of crime movie stuff, the sort of American independent cinema that was accessible at Blockbuster or whatever for me. And then that transition to this rap that felt really cinematic and literary. It just sort of like all, and it was really accessible. I think that's the other thing. It's like outcasts were on TV. I discovered them because I had an uncle who liked them, but like they were just around. It wasn't, it wasn't, the same. It wasn't that you had to mail order before you go to Best Buy and buy a CD. It was very like there, and that was kind of exciting. It felt like you were part of something because it was on MTV, but it also felt cool. It didn't feel uh, bogus, or even even already having some of those thoughts about uh, you know mainstream culture or whatever. Like it felt insurgent when something like Outcast showed up. It didn't feel like oh you can't like that. It was like oh this is cool. These guys are on tv they've like same with wu-tang wu-tang really framed as like a takeover so i really like that about it too this like sort of insurgent quality hopefully this is not too much of a tangent but i think it does relate uh, for years just you know people i've encountered friends of mine and people i've encountered in life and you get to know someone and a little bit about them and who they are and it just occurred to me that the the children of younger parents have a very different relationship with pop culture than the children of older parents. It's like, and I think you got to it in that they're, they're not quite as out of date. You know, the records that they have aren't, you know, 20 or 30 years old, they're 10 years old. And so it's a little more, you're, you're in, you're in the current cycle more than if your folks are listening to, you know, I don't know, Jefferson Airplane or whatever would have, would be the equivalent. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the first records I remember as a kid that my parents were listening to was a Scorpions tape and I think a New Kids on the Block tape. Like, you know, so my parents are uh, about around 16 or 17 years older than me. So they're pretty young, you know, so that's complicated. Um, but yeah, it's like, they're bringing in stuff because they're still wanting it. And then also, I mean, I, I, I don't think my parents will listen to this, but if they do, we've had plenty of conversation about this. Like, they were not good parents. Like, they were like kids that didn't know what they were doing. And so it's also like the selfishness of being a, a basically a teen or early 20-something. I mean, in other ways, like, they're both, like, my father was working, like, three jobs. They were doing a lot to because uh, they had this kid that they probably shouldn't have had. But, um, but like... That at the same time, they're like, it's the end of the day. We're going to watch what we want to watch. If you're going to be in the room, like that kind of, that's a bit of a selfishness you have when you're younger. But yeah, also just that the media they would have been ingesting was closer and more accessible because the age difference wasn't there and they weren't um, 
yeah, they didn't have 20 or 25 years on me the way most parents would, I think. Well, so you have, you went on from these, you know, salad days to um, write about uh, music and write about rap with, with some authority. And um, we had Jeff Parker on the show not long ago and uh, on sort of an unrelated tangent, we started talking about being kids who really paid attention to stuff, you know, who looked at the backs of records as opposed to whatever, just like, you know, jamming a tape in the, in the player or something like that in your mom's car. You know, there are people who really focus on it and, and that tends to develop in some way later in life, even if they're not musicians. It sounds like you were one of those kids. It sounds like that this was maybe that the beginning of that taking apart and putting it back together that would end up taking place in your writing. Yeah. Yeah. Like, again, I think I came from like a, I was very encouraged to do creative things as a kid, but I wasn't given a lot of direction. And so writing and things like that, that is, and drawing, which are just like basic creative things, a lot of kids that I was encouraged to do that. I wasn't sort of censored in terms of what I was doing. Like I definitely have some comics. My parents are like lots of like weird, dirty jokes in them. And just like thinking, I was like, Hey, I wrote this. My parents would laugh. They wouldn't say, Oh, that's bad or whatever. Um, but I bring that up because you have this sort of interested in writing and also having someone like, so my uncle is, when I'm 14, he's 21, so he's in college at the time. Like that's an example is like whenever his freshman year of college was, I read Catcher in the Rye because I was at my grandmother's house and it was sitting there. And I was like, this is a book. I don't know. Like, I didn't know what it was at all, you know, or I read Being There because he had to read it for a class. Like, so he's sort of falling into those things. And then that, I think, somehow sparking something about my interest in like, how do these things work or analyzing or what am I getting out of them is important. And then... The other side that rap does for you is the meta qualities you're talking about kind of call attention to itself. So it's hard to sort of get out of that orbit. And then because of the sort of uh, both sophisticated and also hyper cynical branding of rap, you really started to know who people were because in a way like it wasn't like <laughs> you think of like those cash money records even and it's like, they all have the same look for a reason. They also are coming out every other week. The, where you listen to an Outkast song, you're like, oh, this is, um, you know, Big Rube. He's on a lot of their stuff. Or, you know, like, whereas, like, it wasn't like Pavement was, like, Pavement featuring the Silver Jews or something. And they're all on the cover together. Like, you had to kind of be in the know. But, like, Rap, because it was, again, a, I think in some ways a major label insurgency, not unlike the grunge movement and like the grunge movement, it was ultimately lost all of its weight and energy because that's what happens when you enter that world. But there's a moment where you're, it's like, feels like that insurgency again. And so, but you'd have these songs where you'd start to see, or it's like the guy from this song is on this song and that's just how rap worked. And so it was easier to know that. And then with some of it, like you started to know because of the, how they would shout out their producers, organize noise and things like that. You start to actually know like who made the music in a different way. And like, even though I didn't really think about that in a really deeper way until I was starting to write or just later in life, like you listen to something again, like this track, the uh, outcast track, you know, it's a really strange beat. Like you start to recognize that more and more as you get older and they're like, Oh, okay. These are these producers they are working with. This is the whole kind of thing they're going for. And so I think that, they they la the rap allow rap because of its meta qualities really allowed you to um really allowed you to encouraged you to take it apart and then that encouraged me to sort of look deeper and it was easy because again like i just for me like a best buy is a great example he's going to a best buy and the rap section was huge and like if you like cash money stuff you just bought all the cds with the same diamonds and fonts but even the outcast stuff like you got a sense of it or they would shout out or like even in this song at the end of the song, he says, whatever, after he, he, he finishes his business with the woman, he gives her a Little Will poster. Little Will's like an outcast affiliate whose record never came out. It's actually a great record. You can find it online. But like, that was like probably what the street team was pushing at the time of Equimini. But that record just never came out. But like, there's lots of things. Like, that's why I know who Little Will was, because in some interview, they were like, we got that Little Will record coming out soon. It just never actually came out. Right. Well, you know, you, you pick up the breadcrumbs and the clues and, and <laughs> next thing you know, you have a job doing that. Yeah. Yeah. And for me, it's just like, like what happened was that impulse to read into this stuff 
just it turned out to be what I was sort of good at and had a good ability, I felt like, to understand and remember information. And so going into college, which I just was a literature major, like every person doesn't know what they're doing, that kind of close reading stuff, I was just sort of starting to more apply that to the music I was interested in. And then when I would get a chance, even in college, if like they gave you like your paper can be about any, I also went to Goucher College, like a very small liberal arts college. And so professors there were really encouraging. And so um, there was a philosophy there that like, you you wrote a lot of papers in the English program now, like you, and like something to be like 20, 30 page papers once or at least twice, at least once a quarter, maybe twice. And so sometimes it would be like, they would really, some professors really encourage you to connect it to something other than just the world that you're writing about. And so I definitely did a couple papers, especially in like postmodernism classes about sampling or lyrics or referencing lyrics. Um, I mean, even in this, I mean, another really powerful thing to me that's like a sort of ethos is like, there's that, it's like that now thing on the hook of the song. And like, I assume it's in part a Run DMC reference as long as it's like that, that's the way it is. And so there's a kind of powerful uh, uh, resignation to the song too. And so that was, if, if, if a professor is going to give me a way to spin that into a paper, I'm going to, I was going to take that when I was 19 or whatever. Stuck up soon as a pop-up and see me with the next she wanna tear the brother club up. Check up pass a number confirming. I learn more and more some chicks that dump. The second piece of music that Soderbergh chose as essential to his formation was Zombie by Fabio Fritzi. second piece of music this uh sort of really small part of the score of the italian movie zombie by fabio frizzi is kind of a synthy uh disco zombie movie score guy um was to me i begin it stands in for just soundtracks which again being a person who like started by cds in the mid to late 90s like there were soundtracks was just a whole weird business and it was a way you would find out about music especially old music. Again, the Tarantino soundtracks kind of classic example as like you, I was in 1995 or whatever. was like, Oh, this Al Green guy's pretty good. Cause there's an Al Green song in the Pulp Fiction. It's a very weird way to get into stuff. And there's sort of the bigger, more cynical, uh, you slap a bunch of hot songs on a soundtrack and sell the soundtrack. And you know, the CDs were $18. They were pressing them that whole weird CD boom. Um, and then, it, so that was important to me because how I was finding out about music was watching movies and stuff like that opened that up. And again, it's kind of pre-file sharing and didn't have access to like record stores or anything. So buying something like the Dead President soundtrack, another example, like that was all these great songs. Um, and at the same time, watching movies was really important to me. You would start to pick up on scores and cool soundtracks and things like that, more in that like sort of scoring. And so um, with this soundtrack which is a great soundtrack i think i got this i saw this movie probably like 1998 same around the same time um and then and whenever i got a dvd player in 2002 or three i think i bought this for 20 bucks and the soundtrack i thought was cool but it really grabbed me when i sort of revisited the movie a few years after i saw it, which i think i'm sure i just saw it like stoned at a party it's a goofy italian zombie movie it's really gory woman gets impaled on a door um really intense stuff um, so this is this is the one with the shark and the zombie. Yes. Fighting. Yeah. Yeah. There's a moment where. Uh, yeah. I mean, that's a great example of the movie because like the score is sort of like very like narcotic and like synthy, but sort of slow in the march. And then in sort of quasi slow motion, a topless woman is attacked by a shark and then a zombie comes out and stops the shark. 
So yeah, um, it's a pretty weird movie, but I, I really like it. I think that the director, Lucio Fulci, is sort of weird and like Poe-esque and that he just was not at all interested in things making sense. He was trying to convey a mood. And the music does that awesomely. The reason that this song stuck out to me once I sort of downloaded the soundtrack because it's about a minute and 20 seconds long and it's not really, I don't get any sort of percussion. It's just sort of a couple synthy noises. And that struck me as just pure atmosphere and kind of like the dread was more interesting than the stuff that felt more sort of propulsive and like told you how to feel um, in a more, hey, there it's the drum machine is going faster because it's scary or whatever. This is just this weird sort of dreary song that at the same time was I was starting to get into a lot of electronic music. But I think that like the feeling and it was kind of it's hard to explain exactly, but it felt like one of these sounds that like I have been looking for something about the way it made me feel this sort of druggy dread was very real to me. And so there was that was kind of intense. And then the way I think that something I really have always been really obsessed with probably to an unhealthy degree is like that dread or like bad things. And like, I like, I want, when I started to write, especially when I started to do less music criticism, which I'd be saying this song rules because it sounds like it's full of dread. <laughs> I start to like trying to do more sort of storytelling and journalism. I started to do later. I really was trying to make writing that made you feel a certain way like how did, how can the writing itself make you feel the way this event that i'm reporting on happened and that was often related to like thinking about stuff that wasn't like an outcast song which is very like verbal and explainy sort of this more visceral quality um like and it's it's i'm kind of it's hard to explain but like i really like <laughs> it's not like a crazy person like I was really, really obsessed in that time with like the Jonestown tape, like the idea that there was a tape of this, this horrible, horrible thing happening. Like it was so fascinating to me and like, not on a level where I thought it was cool. It's nothing cool about it. It's like the worst stuff, but like that was really powerful to me that like you could hear, you could get that close to something bad. <laughs> um, and I think that like writing wise and, uh, personally in personal ways like i've been very interested in like how long can you stare at that void or touch that void um and that's that kids don't follow my lead here but just saying like, it's very interesting to me and so this song and a lot of music like this whether it was sort of arty stuff like a lot of this sort of uh i think about like stuff like compact records or uh constellation or some of that sort of synthy electronic noisy stuff all felt really close to this that's the other thing i'm starting to see is like oh this cool music that i'm reading about on pitchfork or whatever actually sounds a lot like this music that was sort of cultish and uncool um and so i just like the way that it captures this sort of like that kind of dread and that atmosphere i mean a really interesting thing that when Boehner and i started doing this book about the gun trace task force which is just endless stories of dread and terror and intense situations um Nicole, Boehner's wife Nicole who's uh an academic and at UMBC and is a really always been very helpful she's a weird drinking or something right we sort of I think had been working this out she was like well why do you want to do this and uh Baynard who has a much better education than I am is a bit more of a sophisticated person than I am was sort of his real interest in it was this idea of like what how do people get become corrupt or when you give people power they they corrupts absolutely or sort of the ring when you give someone the ring of visibility they will kill the king he was really interested in that philosophical idea and i didn't mean to be glib but i was just like i just i think this is a great story i think it says things about the world and policing that we should care about but personally it was just a great way to get close really close to that void and that's really important to me in terms of reporting and writing and then just for whatever reason, this song was like that it came like the song like sort of came through this goofy zombie movie. It hit me and it stuck with me for more than 20 years. Well, you know, I kept thinking while you were while you were describing um, that that sense of dread and that sense of unease that sound and music can create um, somewhere along the way. Um, 
this may have been some country relative of mine, used the phrase hell with the lid off. Like it sounds like hell with the lid off. And that's a phrase, not a musical phrase, but that's a phrase that's always stuck with me is like, not that's the thing I want to listen to all the time, but if you've got something that sounds like that, I want to hear it. Because it's, there's something really compelling about, I mean, you know, that's one of the things that people turn to music for is to take them to some other place, take them somewhere else, put them in a, in a state that they don't otherwise have access to. And, you know, we talk about a lot of different kinds of music on the show and, and in lots of different ways, but we haven't really gotten to that thing where you're, you're looking for, I mean, people, music can transport you, but sometimes what you want it to do is transport you not to a good place necessarily. And it sort of sounds like that's what you're talking about. Yeah, yeah. And when and it's similar to like the hell with the lid off is great. I'm going to use that forever now. But like there's also this thing of like um, there are the sort of sounds that we all understand are mean dread or whatever. And like a lot of metal, which I love, like I really like black metal and like still listen to all those Nazi guys, even though I should put them aside. Like that stuff to me is really powerful and, and really intense. Um, and so, but that sort of fits into like the kind of common understanding of, which is a great thing to explore and feel, but to um, something like this song is like really kind of subtle and it kind of is like hell with the lid off because maybe the lids is a little bit off. <laughs> you can only hear a little bit of the hell and that's kind of intense. And I think about, um, sorry, I feel like I'm being very heavy here, but like I think about the kind of um, even when I've done reporting, it's been really chaotic. Um, the weirdness of that violence or things that are happening in front of you or when you talk to someone, it's never really clean and simple. I mean, the example that comes to mind uh, just sort of prepare is related to when I, I was at Charlottesville, Virginia, when there was white supremacist attack. There was a moment um, where. I was following these group of people this before the attack. This is when this uh, young black kid was beaten by these um, Nazis. And I was sort of following it, and I was really up with them because I also have a tendency to run at this stuff, which we can deal with. You're not my therapist, Lee. We'll get with that later. Um, but, like, what struck me about that in the moment, because stuff moves in slow motion when it's like this, like, there were people five feet away that weren't, really realizing it was necessarily happening or whatever you know what i mean so that kind of weirdness of what or that's why i think the jonestown tapes comes to mind because it's like there's a lot of really sort of again i go with this like quotidian thing like there's a lot of weird things that happen like these aren't just these clean clear examples of hell or whatever it's sort of really strange this song kind of manifests that and it kind of relates like i feel like people say this too but like oftentimes for me like when you read something and you end up feeling like it really changed how you think. It's not so much that like it changed your mind like 180. It's like someone articulated something that you already had inside your head just way better than you could. That's one of the reasons we write and read, you know? And this song kind of felt like, oh, this is kind of a feeling that I've had. It's weird that I am fell into it through this movie, but it really kind of, that's a part of it too. It's like, oh, this this weird song that was probably made in 10 seconds as long it's not like it was it's not a sophisticated or particularly ambitious song i'm sure it was like hey we need a minute and 20 second cue where we show the beach or the the zombie boat um but to me the sound of it just hit in that way that felt i was like i i've i've i felt this way and that was really powerful and then trying to my sort of impulse been how to try to translate that into writing in some ways I think this is also an interesting choice because um, right around the time probably that you were having this revelation, that particular sound started to become like one of the coolest possible sounds in, you know, the music nerd universe. It's like uh, it was around that time, you know, if I'm got my chronology roughly straight where, you know, um, uh, emeralds and all these other people were coming out and doing these synth records and people were starting to talk about buklas and moogs and and you know making these kind of retro you know retro 80s 70s horror movies with those soundtracks that were like letter perfect imitations of that sort of thing and so it's it you know like so many things in my lifetime I've watched something go from really uncool 
to, you know, kind of forgotten to now couldn't be more cool and maybe on its way to being on the other side of that. And it's, you know, not that this one little bit of music with its meaning to you has been replicated broadly in the culture, but just the idea that all that stuff eventually comes back, almost anything, almost everything my whole life that has been uncool, I have lived to see become cool somehow. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I mean, this I think I fell right on this. I mean, I, I think that probably what happened is that a lot of dudes around, and they were mostly dudes like me, around my age, a little younger, a little older, just around that, uh, we're starting to hear this stuff, receive this stuff, like, suddenly, I mean, if you think about it, like, I sure I watch zombie as like a laser disc VHS rip at some cool dude's house. But by two or three years after I'd seen it this way, it was a DVD again at a, at a store. And so that stuff sort of the DVD, the arrival of DVDs, I think really made all that stuff accessible too. And so it's, I think I'm part of a weird generation that all heard those sounds. Um, and then have replicated them. And then I think you get an interesting thing that kind of relates to like this dread or is like some of that stuff really doesn't hit me, but then some of it does like personally, like the one Otrix point never is sort of to me, the dude that gets the dread and the vibe of it, not just the sort of facsimile of those sounds. Whereas like, yeah, I will sit here and listen to like John Carpenter since for days, it doesn't have to be good or well done. It's just a great sound to me for reasons that, I don't, that you're talking about these series of situations happened culturally, which I was sort of me and a lot of people around my age were like, this is cool now, even though it wasn't cool. Um, and maybe it was a got a push away from all the other electronic stuff. I remember when like, like Dan Deacon on his episode talked about that, about Daft Punk was like, wait, I'm not supposed to like this kind of stuff. And so there, this moment where electronics became a big part of everything, including like boy band stuff and stuff like that at the same time are like oh there's another way to hear electronic music that's not uh pop or sort of party music and so there's really sort of sleepy electronic song really spoke to me for that reason too i'm sure final song Soderbergh chose as being crucial to him was Relatively Easy by Jason Isbell. So this is uh, uh, Jason Isbell's song, Relatively Easy, from um, which, to me, the again, the, the through line here with Outcast's song is storytelling and good lyrics. Um, and Isbell was in a group called the Drive-By Truckers briefly, who um, were really influenced by a lot of hip-hop storytelling. That's why they were called the Drive-By Truckers. Um, I think their first record's called Trillbilly something, which later becomes like, you know, so they were sort of, and and one of the members usually wrote about like, hey, we're a little sorry for how goofy we were with that. Shit. But it's like, but it's an interesting thing. So I think there's that through line. This, this, and I think that for me, rap music and country music have always been things I've really liked and been interested in. I heard a lot of country music from my grandparents. And so um, the story part of it is really 
compelling to me in the same way that rap is. And I think it's maybe when you asked me that question earlier about the outcast, somebody should have thought of that. Like, yeah, probably all the old country music probably was prepared me for outcast too, in a weird way. And I just wouldn't have thought of it that way until right now. Um, but this song, so this record came out, the record, this song's on in 20 June of 2013. I think the record Southeastern by Jason is both sort of his recovery record. And it came out, right when I had sort of made a decision to not do hard drugs anymore. Um, Cause there's just like getting out of control the way it often does. And so it has that personal. So like hearing this recovery record um, that worked for me or felt like it was maybe a little bit where I was, cause it doesn't have any of this sort of, uh, although I'm more sympathetic to this, but doesn't have what, at the, especially at the time, some of the sort of, there's nothing sort of to me too sentimental or cheesy about this. And the, the way Isbol, who I think is a great writer, talks about these issues. So it felt like the right thing to get for me at that time. So that's important. And it was also right when I moved back to Baltimore um, after sort of two years outside of the New York writing world, which also was a great way to start doing too many drugs and you're getting paid a dollar a word <laughs> and you live in New York working in New York. So what happened? Like I'd spin, I was getting paid a buck a word and I spent all that money on drugs. Um, so, so there were sort of these transitions. The record just showed up personally on that level for me at a moment. But I think what I really like about it so much is that I think Isabel's a great, documenter of like self-destructive behavior in a way that he details it. And I think the song similar to the outcast, I wasn't even trying to pair these up, but like the, you have the three different verses and there, and this song even has sort of a twist or whatever, you know, spoiler alert, he's singing from jail because he's a screw up too. Um, and that's, I shouldn't be so glib about it. Cause it's really powerful, but it's, it's, it's that structure. That's really nice. Same with the outcast song. Like, and you're sort of operating in a really basic structure and then finding these really cool ways to blow that structure up or complicate it, which I also think for me was sort of when I started to do write a lot, I realized that's how you write is you find a structure and then you just make sure that you've hidden that structure. And especially when you do journalism, I started, when I started doing like reporting, you kind of have to hit these beats. They all have to be there. And just, if you can find a way to do that without people realizing you're doing it. So it doesn't kind of, to me read like the, issues I have with like daily news, which just feels so rather than use the structure to enhance the story, the structure actually just restricts the story. So when you see like songwriting like this, like it really is like, wow, this is kind of a classic country song. It's telling a story. It has a little bit of a twist ending, but the way he gets there is really good. And more importantly, really, really empathetic. So to me, you have, especially the verse, the middle verse about the guy who, you know, takes all the muscle relaxers, you know, it's such a good description of someone in it that kind of just tells it matter of factly, but doesn't ham it up or make it too sentimental, but doesn't, but is really kind. And you hear that and the way he's described like a vandal smile is like, a, that's a great line. I don't know if he even invented it, but it's a good line, you know? Um, it was one of, I almost I almost used it. I almost stole it. Was going to footnote it in our in the task force book because the main cop Jenkins, a sort of main psycho cop and psychopath criminal, um, definitely had a vandal smile. You could see it in pictures. I watched a ton of body camera footage. Um, I bring that all up because like there was just something really powerful about this song to me and the way that it offers up a lot of empathy and sympathy and then implicates the, the the storyteller at the end and then at the end and it's very much like the kind of self-destructive behavior that i think people who have let their lives get out of control can relate to because it's like basically like he had cogs he was just like shooting his roof and then the cops come and made a big deal about it and he described it so matter-of-factly but also there's a real powerful kind of way that the way Isabel sings it and the way he finds the right details and the right lines make it all hit. And that's maybe goes back to the outcast song too. Like it's the, the, there's just the right amount of detail. And I don't know how to articulate that better, but like all of the details mean something. So it's not just like over description, but it's also not sort of 
bare bonesing it. It's like finding each, like, like each thing or like, you know, again, like the story of him, the van also has a baseball in his hand. You get a whole like kind of world out of that. And that's really hard to do. And so um, I think that the, the country music like rap is really good at that. Even though there's sort of sometimes like rap is prickly maximalist a lot of the time country music kind of not, but um, I think by this point, I mean, there's the really crazy version of country music where it's all like has hip hop beats and like, that's sort of the dumbest. Also that stuff's great, but that's like kind of dumb stuff. Um, that's like one way to take a rap influence. But another way is for someone like Isabel who clearly listens to a little bit of rap and I've heard him talk about it and to see how you use these details to render like a profile of someone is really powerful. And I just love this song um, for that, that kind of reason. It's just like a really great portrait of a couple people in a bad situation that doesn't ever lose. It doesn't go too far into sort of judging or being sort of like, Oh, feel bad for these people. It's really, that's hard to do. I think. Well, when we were talking about outcast, you use the term cinematic and I think that that is, um, occasionally I had, um, I had chances, uh, opportunities, uh, duties to try to teach people how to write, either teaching a class or working with the writers that I worked with at various jobs. Newer writers, especially, sometimes I would talk about um, writing as being like the director of a movie. You know, the director of a movie is the person who's, showing you what to look at, showing you what to pay attention to. Ideally, you know, there are bad directors who are bad at that, but a good director is always directing your attention to the thing that you're supposed to be paying attention to. And that's what a good writer does. And you, you know, you don't want to shove someone's face in it. You just want to say, look over there, that's something that you should remember for later, you know, or look at this person, what are they feeling? You know, project that onto that. And I think that, um, good writing of any kind, uh, whether it's the journalism, uh, or, or fiction or, um, writing song lyrics, writing, writing raps, um, does a lot of that same thing. You know, it's like good details makes you see it, um, doesn't overplay its hand. Yeah. Yeah, totally. And like, and, and, and you have, and when you, you have, when you, whether you're reporting or you're coming up with something out of your head, like off the top of your head, there's just endless things, any endless ways you can report that. Like if you're a good reporter, you're taking all this stuff in and your job kind of is to put the stuff out that matters without sort of cheating reality, but you're making decisions every day. And again, it's sort of like a thing that I think a lot of more uh, sort of conventional daily news kind of folks that I think we're sort of, there's a bit of a reckoning with or realizing they're making decisions all the time too. They're self making the wrong ones. But like the idea is like, yeah, you're picking the right stuff and you're sort of leading towards an idea. Or I think like Tana C. Coates talks about like reported argument. And like that's not exactly what we're talking about, but like you pick the points that add up that are reflective of reality, that feel real and see are real, but also make a sort of clear point or develop a point of view or with a song, set a scene or a character. And that's hard to do. And yeah, I think that's really important to like know what matters and what doesn't matter and find that way of how does this thing, which is what I think good observation does is like what I like about this Isbel song a lot. What I love about Outcast, I like about a lot of other Isbel songs as well is this idea that like finding a thing that means something more, but not sort of leaning on that too much or something is kind of a crappy description, but like finding something that works but doesn't isn't too obvious or doesn't sort of you know say push you too much in one direction but sort of has a whole uh world behind it whether it's associations you're gonna have with it or just that like i mean i don't it's weird because i've listened to the song a lot but i don't know but like i assume at the implication is that at some point this guy was who's you know overdosed near christmas on uh muscle relaxers um is was some sort of baseball play baseball because there's a story there's a line about it like i and my me association was like i'm projecting but in my head it's like it's probably some guy who played it was good in high school and then didn't after that or played in college or like but like just that detail there's a lot there because it holds in it like a lot of like 
maybe lost or missed opportunity, but also doesn't sort of push it too far. It's kind of there. And then like, that's really hard to do. And I think that the, and then to also do that and not, and find a way to not, to me at least ring as judgy or condescending, even in your sympathy or empathy is like hard to do. And when a song can do that, it's really powerful. And I guess the other thing I'm realizing now is that this song also like the outcast song is sort of journalistic because it's someone observing a bunch of stuff, but then they're kind of part of the song. And obviously the, this is more of a kind of, um, this is more of a, you know, clear, Oh, you know, he's in jail and it's sort of this love letter. To this one. it's much more ornate, but the bottom line, it's another insider outsider. Like for the first two verses, you think it's this sort of, semi-omniscient or some narrator kind of talking to someone and giving but it's actually he's in it too and so it kind of actually really feels the way and I think that's also something that good journalism could do and good writing can do is we want to feel like the person doing it has some stake in it and is in it too and it's it's interesting those two the outcast song and the isbel song kind of both rhyme in that way I didn't realize that until I put them next to each other here oh one of the things that I like about this song is that it has that empathy that you're talking about and sort of, you know, getting across something I think is often lost these days, which is, you know, you may be having a bad time, but someone else is probably having a worse time. You know, if you woke up and you're in your house and you're not, you know, sick and your family's okay, then you already are, you know, way ahead of a whole bunch of people. And that's something that should be part of every hit song, I think. Not that this was necessarily hit, but you know what yeah. I mean. That's a message that needs repeating. Yeah, yeah, totally. And it, it complicates it because, you know, at first it kind of sounds like it's a guy singing to his wife or partner who's had a long day. Um, and all this stuff it kind of gets into immediately. The brother who's now on a church, in the church instead of blow. It's like really, it feels real, you know. Um, and so that sort of acknowledgement of privilege that, we all have relatively different, different ways because we're in America and, you know, um, is real. And then it kind of even plays with that because then the guy that is telling you that is currently in jail and sort of writing to this woman. And so, yeah. And so like that perspective too, maybe that is kind of also the kind of inside outsider journalistic thing of like the same way Andre in the outcast song is like, Oh, wow what do you want to be when you grow up? And this woman says to him alive, he's like, Whoa, I was not ready for that. And I think cause he's in his formative years, it is it echoed through his head for a long time. And again, whether it's a real story or not, doesn't matter to me. It's what it means to me and other people. And then the Isabel song has the same thing where it's like, even in this tenuous position, there's still some degree of privilege and awareness. And that's a, and to find a way to do that and not be sort of like, uh, Pinteresty, motivational, or I don't know, uh, um, keep calm and all those kind of things that have been resurrected for sort of Facebook pop optimism. Hang in there, baby. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. To do that and for me to be like, yeah, I'd be moved by it, it means something. I think, again, like to find some optimism, which even that Outcast song in its own way has some of the optimism by the fact that like a person is speaking to you about a thing and you can learn something and they learn something, that, that's about as good as anything's going to get some days, and that's great. And then the Isbel song kind of adds another layer to that. But um, but yeah, that's really hard to do, and that empathy and that uh, again looking at the darkness and acknowledging the darkness. And even seeing some of the sort of absurdity of the darkness, but also realizing like there's a way you can also direct the listener or the reader away from it in a way that's healthy. They can leave with something more than just dread, which I'm a big fan of dread as this uh, conversation has shown. But I do think about that. Like I, I don't like so-called solutions journalism, but or whatever, but I think it's important that you don't leave people especially right now given how messed up everything seems to just leave people with like everything's messed up man the end like it's not you know and like that was something that with the book banner and i really talked about was like how do we tell this story in a way that's accurate that doesn't try to find a happy ending there's not a happy ending in the story really at all that the cops were arrested is not even a happy ending but to make sure you felt something 
bigger about the world and the people and the city of Baltimore out of it is at least some form of hope. There's the individual actions that people take that are trying to do and that are trying to make change and that's touching. But then to sort of make sure you don't land on just hopelessness or try to tie it up in a nice way is uh, hard. And again, that's what I think that's so great about the hook to Isbel song. It's like he finds a way to be like, we're doing okay, but that's still, you know, it doesn't feel corny or contrived. That's really hard to do. That's really try to avoid that kind of emotional manipulation. It's really important to me in good art. Hopefully I don't do that when I write stuff. This has been Essential Tremors. Essential Tremors is produced by me, Matt Byers, and Lee Gardner. Our production intern, Jonas Byers, edited this episode. Essential Tremors is distributed by WYPR Baltimore and NPR. To get in touch, get more information, or buy Essential Tremors merchandise, go to EssentialPodcast.com. Thanks for listening. Here with you there's always something to look forward to. My lonely heart beats relatively easy. My lonely heart beats relatively easy.